You are listening to Living for the Cinema with Jeff Gershon. Welcome to our Living for the Cruise series. Over the past 40 years, since his breakout starring role in the 1983 comedy Risky Business, one of our most enduring movie stars has been Thomas Mapother IV, otherwise known as Tom Cruise. He has excelled in a variety of genres, but most recently mainly in action, and just last year he starred in the biggest hit of his career, Top Gun Maverick. Well, as a follow-up this year, we will see his return to the beloved Mission Impossible franchise, once again playing IMF agent Ethan Hunt. Over the next several months, I will be revisiting one notable Tom Cruise movie each month, and each from a different era of his career, culminating with the July 14th U.S. release of Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning, Part 1. Days of Thunder, which came out in 1990. It was directed by Tony Scott. It stars Tom Cruise, Robert Duvall, Nicole Kidman, Randy Quaid, Michael Rooker, John C. Riley, Carrie Elwes, and Fred Dalton Thompson. The genre would be sports drama. Tim tells me you've been running open wheels. That's right. And now you just want to up and drive NASCAR. That's right. What do you know about stock car racing? Well... Watch on television, of course. You've seen it on television? ESPN. The coverage is excellent. You'd be surprised at how much you can pick up. I'm sure I would. Look, this may not be the best time for you to run this car. Let me drive. I won't make a fool out of you. This is going to be a joke. You're lucky in that tunnel turn because that car was way out of shape. Well, you think it was luck? Let's do it again. You build me a car and I'll win Daytona next year. Thanks to the lasting contributions of acclaimed screenwriter Robert Town, among several others who went uncredited, this is most certainly a very quotable film. So let's have some fun. Let's start off with the top 10 most memorable lines from Days of Thunder. Number 10, from the cruise missile. That's how I referred him. It's nothing I can't do with a race car. Number 9, also from Cruise. When I'm driving, I got a guy on the radio who talks to me. I can't see him, but he talks to me. Number 8, from Robert Duvall. Hey, there's nothing stock about a stock car. Number 7, from Nicole Kidman in her American film debut. Well, I'm going to let you in on a little secret that almost everybody else in this world automatically knows. Control is an illusion, you infantile egomaniac. Nobody knows what's going to happen next. Number six, from future U.S. Senator Fred Dalton Thompson. In other words, lettuce is a perishable item. Like you two monkeys. Number five, from Robert Duvall again. When you shift the gear and that little needle on the tack goes into the red and reads... 9,000 RPM, that's bad. Number four, from Randy Quaid. Not exactly. If you're from California, you're not a Yankee. You're not really anything. Number three, also from Randy Quaid. And what do we do? We end up looking like a monkey fucking a football out there. Number two, Robert Duvall again. Hmm. No, he didn't slam you, he didn't bump you, he didn't nudge you. He rubbed you. 
and Rubin's son is racist. And number one, and we'll save this one for the trailer moment category. Yes, indeed, Days of Thunder. Written by Robert Town, directed by the late, great Tony Scott, and produced by the visionary alliance of the late, great Don Simpson and Jerry Bruckheimer, and starring a beautifully shaggy-haired, denim-clad future winner of Scientology's Freedom Medal of Valor Award, this might be the most self-aware blockbuster any of these folks have ever made. I could even see it at the ripe age of 15 when I first saw this in theaters, and I can still see it. This film beat Last Action Hero to the punch by three years being a movie star's ultimate meta-tribute to himself. Though, you could say that about Top Gun Maverick, but I'll put this one up there. If all that quoted dialogue does not betray that, then you still have a pounding, super synthy Hans Zimmer score to remind you. Or seemingly buttoned-up Randy Quaid going apeshit. Or Fred Dalton Thompson stopping the movie to lecture everyone sternly. Or producer Don Simpson in a brief cameo playing himself as an auto racer. Or Michael Rooker, a young baby-faced Michael Rooker, playing the cocky, brash, good old boy, the rival. You're late. We uh, had car trouble. What kind of car trouble? I believe it was the radiator. Wasn't it, Cole? Yes, Randy, I believe it was. Or late 80s Carrie Elway's playing the same exact, no joke, he's playing the same exact douchey pretty boy hotshot rival that he would play the following year in a parody of Top Gun. Hotshots. Yep. Everyone is in on the joke. And that's what makes this a gloriously entertaining time capsule of a simpler era, when instead of making a cash-in sequel to Top Gun, they chose to go this route by making a funnier cash-in remake, which actually improves on the original. Controversial opinion, I know. And now we will start with the categories. And I'm going to add one category for this series, for the Living for the Cruise series. This is the cruisiest moment. Tom Cruise has become such an otherworldly star to the point where many have often speculated as to whether he is in fact a real, living, breathing human being. And the cruisiest moment would be the moment in this film which most brings this speculation to light. So... For this particular cruise vehicle, this has to be his post-coital scene with future wife, Nicole Kidman, playing Dr. Lewicki, the 23-year-old brain surgeon whom Cole Trickle is falling for. That's the name of his character, Cole Trickle. Now, when most folks talk about the most ridiculous seduction scenes of the 1990s, it always seems as if the first one mentioned is the infamous animal cracker scene from Armageddon, featuring Ben Affleck and Liv Tyler. Baby, you have such sweet pillow top. I got like a little animal cracker Discovery Channel thing happening right here. <laughs> Watch the gazelle as he grazes through the open planks. <laughs> and yes, that is a strong entry. But this one kind of gives it a run for its money. Cole Trickle and Dr. Lewicki, they're lying in bed, naked under the sheets. And Cole decides to use two sweet and low packets running alongside her thigh to demonstrate the racing tactic of drafting. It's a real thing, drafting. Like the Armageddon animal crackers scene, I highly doubt that two actual human beings have ever actually done this in real life. Well, except as an homage to the movie, of course. But I'll say this. Since seeing this scene, I've always had a good grasp of what it means to draft. So there's that. It's called drafting. One car tucks in behind another. Two cars can go faster than one. They divide the air resistance between them. Now here's where it gets interesting. The lead car has to floor it to hit 200 miles an hour. But the car that's tucked in behind doesn't. It can go just as fast and still have power in reserve. 
So when these two cars come off that last turn, the car that's in back can move out of the draft and slingshot past the lead car, beat it to the finish line. And you go straight to victory lane. The next category would be the best needle drop. This is the best song cue or piece of score used throughout the runtime of the film because music is essential to film. First things first, it's clear that they were at least attempting to frame this movie with a catchy synth-based soundtrack comparable to Top Guns, which came out four years prior. And while there is no Kenny Loggins, I think they succeeded for the most part. In lieu of Loggins, they instead hired David Coverdale, who had previously been the lead singer of Deep Purple and Whitesnake. Pretty iconic voice there, too. David Coverdale lends his unique vocal range to what is considered the main theme of the movie, which is a rousing tempo-changing rocker called Last Note of Freedom. Now, don't get me wrong. I like this song quite a bit. Only thing is, unlike Loggins' Danger Zone, which we hear not one, not two, but three times during the entirety of Top Gun, we hardly hear this song in the movie. We only hear about half of it during the end credits, and that's it. And that would likely be because it's actually the instrumental version of this theme which dominates this film's score. And we hear this version throughout the movie, including the now iconic on-screen introduction to Cruz's Cold Trickle, a fun scene which was pretty much just recut for the original teaser trailer. And who does this theme? Well, I already mentioned him. That would, of course, be my favorite living composer, the Zim, Hans Zimmer. This was early in his career, but at a key point when he was really starting to make a name for himself. He had just composed the scores for the past two Best Picture winners at the Oscars, Rain Man and Driving Miss Daisy. But this, after Black Rain, was one of his earliest full-on action scores. And it's pretty rousing, especially that main theme, which has a nice mix of synth, brass, and electric guitar. Now, just a warning. In the interest of others' safety around you on the road, do not listen to this while driving. The next category would be Wasted Talent. This is the most underutilized talent involved with the film. Now back to Nicole Kidman, who a few years later would actually go on to marry Mr. Cruz, and who just over a decade later after this movie came out, would go on to win a Best Actress Oscar for her starring role in The Hours, among several other top-flight performances which she would go on to deliver. This was early in her career. And no doubt, she's fun to watch, but to say that she's miscast 
Well, it's actually kind of missing the point. It's more than that. On paper, her character does not actually make any real sense. She's in her early 20s playing a brain surgeon. Okay, think about the many years of schooling, including residency, which you need to complete before becoming a licensed practicing surgeon with a specialty. So what, was she a peer of Doogie Hauser completing medical school before 18? And in what bizarro worlds are renowned on-call surgeons flown to different parts of the country just so they could give follow-up patients a rudimentary physical exam at their country homes? I mean, that makes just about as much sense as having a civilian woman in her 20s serving as a naval flight instructor. You were in a 4G inverted dive with a MiG-28? Well, okay, maybe, maybe that tracks. <laughs> Well, at the very least, we did get to watch her Dr. Lewicki dress down Cole to pull over his car in her native Australian in one very memorable moment late in the movie. Let me out of the car, Cole. Let me out of the car. Let me out of the car. Let me out or I'm getting out. Hey, hey, hey. But still, this role is beneath her talent. The next category would be the trailer moment. This is the scene or moment that best describes this movie. This, of course, has to bring me back to the actor who I think is actually the true star of this movie from an acting perspective. And it's not the cruise missile. Yeah, if we're being honest, this is actually not one of Tom Cruise's better performances. I mean, he's fine, but it's very low-key for the most part. It's as if Cruise is trying to do his own version of the Steve McQueen mysterious but silent type, but with a shaggier haircut. I'm not sure if those two work together, but oh well. Nope, it's actually the legendary Robert Duvall, who not only delivers a strong number of the best lines in this movie, but also has more lines overall. In essence, this is kind of his story, Harry Hogg I'm referring to. He's leading a NASCAR crew one more time and hoping to redeem himself after the preventable death of Buddy Bretherton, who was a previous racer that he managed. Duvall is truly sublime in this part, and it feels as if 95% of what is coming out of his mouth are true gems. And not only that, he actually expresses the most emotion of any major character in the story. And his signature moment is also the signature moment for this movie. Early on, after he has agreed to lead a crew for Cole Trickle on the NASCAR circuit, we see Harry alone in a big barn, dusty garage on his farm, delivering a monologue to the frame of a race car. He's basically giving a motivational speech to this inanimate object, which he is trusting with the life of his driver. And here's the thing about this scene. It's one of the few points of the movie where we really deviate from the formula of this kind of story. And not only that, Duval just kills it. Oh, and for the record, my personal choice, going back to that chart earlier, for best line among this crop is, I'm going to shave half an inch off you and shape you like a bullet. And the rest of the surrounding dialogue is also poetry. I'm going to give you an engine, low to the ground, extra big oil pan will cut the wind from underneath you. That'll give you 30 to 40 more horsepower. I'm going to give you a fuel line that will hold an extra gallon of gas. I'm going to shave half an inch off you and shape you like a bullet. And when we get your prime painted and weighed, ready to go out on that racetrack. You hear me? You're gonna be perfect. And now the final category, the MVP, the person or people who are most responsible for the success of this film. No doubt, Cruz does what he was hired to do. Zimmer delivers one of his first iconic scores, and Duval gives the best acting performance of the movie. And I have little doubt that the coke-fueled excesses driven by the late producer Don Simpson are likely a big reason for how this film had no shortage of resources behind it. 
At the end of the day, though, it's the late, great Tony Scott who pulls this all together. This was his fourth full-on big-budget star vehicle in a row, after Top Gun, Beverly Hills Cop 2, and Revenge. And Revenge, which came out earlier this year, was a dark movie for its time. Kind of refreshing. But sorry, that movie is just way too in love with making its star look good for the camera to really register as a satisfying overall movie. And no doubt, Kevin Costner looks amazing in that movie, even after he's brutally beaten in the second act. But that's the thing. It was a Kevin Costner vehicle at the end of the day, and a film that relied very much on Costner's charisma. Whereas, as far as I'm concerned, yes, this is a Tom Cruise vehicle, but it's not relying on his charisma. No, Days of Thunder marks the point where Tony Scott himself became the star, even though he was the director. It's a director's movie that, despite all of its flaws, I mean, we are talking a troubled production here which had loads of rewrites and re-edits right up until the release date. It still tells a very straightforward sports story in a very entertaining and, dare I say, elegant manner. With a strong assist from D.P. Ward Russell, everything just looks gorgeous. From the inside of the racing pit to the hospital boardrooms, even to a silly throwaway scene on top of a parking garage. This looks like the nicest, most cinematic-looking parking garage you'll ever see. And no doubt, of course, helped by seeing peak era Kidman and Cruz bantering on top of it. But it's clear from the get-go that as a director, as someone coordinating all this together, that Tony Scott knew what he had from a casting standpoint. Even unconventional and yet distinct cinematic faces, like John C. Riley early in his career, Michael Rooker early in his career, Fred Thompson, Tony Scott knew just how to utilize them, with everyone given at least one memorable scene that drives the story forward. And following the middling success of this film, which it did well, but it didn't do as well as expected, Tony Scott would then go on to direct three increasingly great films. Well, one good film and two really great films. Previous episode, The Last Boy Scout, and then his two masterpieces, True Romance, which I will be reviewing for its 30th anniversary later this year, and previous episode, and one of my personal favorites, Crimson Tide. For making his mark as one of the great genre directors of his time, Resulting in a highly rewatchable movie, Tony Scott is the MVP. And my rating for Days of Thunder would be four and a quarter stars out of five. Yeah, in case it wasn't obvious, I do prefer this movie to the original Top Gun, even though it shamelessly rips off that film's formula. And yeah, given the recent smash success of Top Gun Maverick, I would personally be super jazzed if producer Jerry Bruckheimer were to announce the production of its own legacy sequel. Let's call it Days of Thunder, Cole Trickle. Come on, Jerry, let's make it happen. And if you're looking to watch the original Days of Thunder, it is currently streaming on Roku TV. And that ends another thunderous review. Special shout out to my lovely wife, Marlene Gershon, for producing this podcast and to my lovely daughter, Ella Gershon, for assisting in the editing. Please like, subscribe, and share the Living for the Cinema podcast, and follow and like us on Facebook, Instagram, and Letterboxd. And join us next time for another review from Living for the Cinema. Living for the Cinema.